I'd like to uh, take your thoughts again this morning to uh, a verse we've been looking at in various messages, Luke chapter 14 and verse 33. We've been thinking about the, um, the truth of this scripture as it relates to us today as Christians here in 2018, soon to be 2019 if the Lord doesn't return. And um, to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, Luke chapter 14 and verse 33, we notice in the, uh, before in the chapter he is referring to the great multitudes that were following him. Verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. We understand that. The um, old English term there is to uh, not to hate as we think of hate, but to, uh, to love more. If any man loves his father, mother, wife, or children, and his own, another scripture talks about lands, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so there's that aspect of self-denial and, and the, the giving up and making Jesus Christ first. And then we get down to, um, uh, well, verse 27, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And so we've been looking at various uh, parts of this as we think about what does it mean in today's world to be a disciple of Jesus, and what are we giving up, and do we understand what it means to give up everything? And and we've discovered, I think, in each of our hearts that that we so many times don't fully understand what this means, and um, maybe you know that some adjustments are needed and some changes are needed in our view of things and life and and various parts of this. And so this morning we again want to want to take a look at this and allow the Holy Spirit to. Again, speak to us from this scripture, and uh, as it relates to uh, being a disciple of Jesus, the last several messages related to the body of Christ, the church, and I would like to uh, pick that up again this morning. We had looked at uh, what it means to uh, exercise self-denial in church life and the body of Christ, and we have been seeing how discipleship and self-denial are essential parts of New Testament brotherhood and how that one of the great delusions of so-called Christianity today is to believe that somehow you can separate your obedience to Christ from being obedient in a scriptural church. And, um, and that is a delusion. It is wrong, because if Christ is the head of the church, head of his body, we are part of a, of a spiritual body that relates to Christ in that way, in all humility and sincerity, there is an obedience that is required there as well. And we also talked about and noticed the, uh, the thought or the principle that the highest calling of the church in the world is to be the church. And I just like to continue to, um, to make sure that we, we, we catch and understand that. We can say, well, it's the highest calling of the church is to preach the gospel or the highest calling of the church is to, to be involved in missions and all those things are important. But, you know, unless we are the, the, the real church first, we're not in a position to go help anyone. So the highest calling of the church in the world is to be the church, be the body of Christ, the way Christ wants us to be, and not fail in that. And we can look around and say, well, why is there so many struggles in churches? You know, and, and a lot of us have, have had to relate to difficult situations in churches, and you say, well, why? Somewhere someone is not really understanding what it means to be the church. You say, well, that's making it too simple, right? But really, isn't that what it, what it is? I mean, we get the, our humanity gets in the way, and, and we don't let Christ be the, the true head, head of his body. And then you end up with all this human interaction that creates so much confusion. And so the highest calling of the church in the world is to be the church. And when we seek that in our lives, it's going to make a difference in church life. It's going to make a difference in brotherhood. It's going to make a difference in how we get along with each other. It's going to make a difference long term of whether we can faithfully continue to be a part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. When, so if a church stops being church-like, 
or Christ-like, it is really no longer a church. And that helps us to understand, you know, when the question is raised, well, there's so many churches, they all claim to be right, you know, where's the truth? What's the connection to the head, to Jesus Christ and his scriptures? You know, and that, that's where it comes down to, in a sense, a fairly simple level we can understand. Is Christ truly the head of the church and does his word carry authority in the church? We looked at some questions as it relates to self-denial. Will I have to give up some of my own ideas and opinions to be a disciple of Jesus in his body, the church? We also looked at being a disciple of Jesus and how it relates to material possessions. What does the New Testament mean when it talks about the early Christians having all things in common? And we looked at some of those scriptures. And um, in relation to um, our concept of being able to or being willing to give up everything, we noticed that some of the early um, baptismal vows of some of the early Anabaptist groups and, and so even the, some of the pietistic groups also uh, actually had in their baptismal vow that they, you had to promise to, to be willing to give up all earthly possessions for the good of the brotherhood. Now, we don't have that usually included in our baptismal vow, but, but isn't that really the concept, though? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, actually, is that there's a scriptural premise for that in relation to brotherhood, that we would be willing to give up our, our, our possessions, our material things, for the good of our brothers and sisters. And so um, uh, when we are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, all that we have been given in stewardship is also under the, uh, the authority and the lordship of Christ as well. And so that means that in the body of Christ, there should be no competition. There should be no jealousy. There should be no covetousness in all of those things because my time is Christ, my money is Christ, my possession all belong to Jesus Christ. You know, I'm a steward of them only. And I will give account for those. We talked about laying up treasures in heaven and how we can do that in relation to material things and transferring those material things into eternal riches. And uh, then the, um, we also looked at uh, self-denial the last time, two weeks ago. We looked at self-denial and discipleship in the context of the conscience of the church and the conscience of my brothers and sisters. And I'd like to... Um, and pick that up today again and take it a step further. Ephesians 5.21 talks about submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And we noticed two weeks ago that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the church. Matthew 16.19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so we have also with that, then we talked about the twofold teaching in relation to this. You know, there's the uh, written standards or guideline that we have, and also there's the unwritten, we could say, or accepted guideline of conscience. And so what does it mean, again, this morning, for us, practically, for us to uh, relate to the conscience of the church and of our brothers and sisters as we are a part of a brother. I'm going to draw this again on, just so we have it in our minds. I'd like to expand on this again this morning. So we have um, the scriptures or the word of God. As the foundation for all Christian or scriptural beliefs. So it's the rock, you can see the rock in Jesus Christ. Um, of course, the Word of God is Jesus Christ. And then, as we think about the Scriptures, uh, on, on top of this rock or foundation stone, we could say are the various pillars of doctrine. And we know that the Scriptures are given to us in principle form. And so we could have uh, uh, separation from the world. We could have uh, non-resistance. We talked about this some last time. We could have um, simplicity. And you could name a whole lot of these scriptures. What, what were some others that we talked about last time, anyone? Principles, doctrines. 
nonconformity to the world. The scripture says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And so you can have, you know, the, the, the scriptural doctrines, um, there's modesty. So we'll take another one. Purity. That's just a sample. So there you have the Word of God, you have the doctrines of Scripture that are the pillars that then upholds, we could say, the, the, uh, what is required as a Christian to be a, a part and to live out the principle, these principles of the Word of God in daily life. And so then in church life, you know, we have, we, where a, a group, a congregation comes together to work together as a local a group of believers, the body of Christ. Well, then, first of all, what happens is there needs to be a way to work out these principles and how they're going to be lived out. And so wherever there's a sincere Christian church in the world, there's going to be some guidelines that are established. And so you can say that, that they're on the premise of these principles there's I have multiple lines there because any particular given scriptural group is then going to have some guidelines. So this would be like this is like a written I realize I'm running small here written statement of practice. And so a group of believers coming together decide on what is the minimum standard that we're going to ask of our membership that we agree upon ourselves, that we're going to live by in order that we can practically live out these principles of the Word of God. And so you have multiple lives because every congregation doesn't necessarily have exactly the same detail. Okay? But if it's a scriptural church endeavoring by the power of the Holy Spirit to find and understand what Christ is teaching and requires of us, there's going to be a fair bit of dissimilarity. You look across conservative churches today, and there's a fair bit of similarity, right? We don't do everything exactly the same, but it's an endeavor to live out these principles of Scripture in a practical way. How do we go? How do we define modesty? How do we define nonconformity? How do we define simplicity, and so on? Now, <clears throat> the last time we also talked then about you say that this is the minimum standard. So this is the basis. Or the basic of what we're, we're asking of membership in a particular congregation. Always above this standard is going to be a level that we call the conscience of the church. Conscious, I'll call it conscience of the group or the conscience of the church. And this is unwritten. If you ever gone to a new, new congregation, for a while, and you're there for a little bit, you realize that they they have certain ways of doing things, um, rightly or wrongly, tradition or whatever you want to call it. There's the unwritten conscience of the group. In other words, this is the minimum practice that is expected of its members. But then within this, above this, why there's the conscience of the group that, that we respond to. And <clears throat> the reason for that is that if if how thick would the book, and we talked about this two weeks ago, how thick would the written statement of standards have to be if you spelled out every single detail? You would end up going under law, right? And not under the spirit. So there's, while there's a basic practice or expectation, there's also a conscience of the group. And that's what we're going to focus more on today, this aspect. We talked about this uh, two weeks ago. Remember we talked about this is a little bit like driving. Where um, we use the illustration from driving. Maybe you boys remember what we talked about. What did we say was the guideline when you're driving on the road? Right, the lines on the highway. What other, what other part of that guideline is there now today, especially on modern highways? The rumble strip, right. You've, I've heard it said, you've heard it said over the years that sometimes church standards are likened to guardrails, and I disagree with that. Because by the time you make contact with the guardrail, you're having an accident. But the minimum standard is to help us like 
It's the lines on the highway. It's like the rumble strip. It's saying this is what we believe is the minimum practice that we're going to put upon ourselves to live out these principles. And so you start hitting down here, you start bumping into the written sta sta uh, standard or statement of practice. It's supposed to be like the, the lines on the road or the rumble strip. It's like a wake-up call. Now, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, losing, I'm losing something here. I'm losing track here. I'm, I'm veering off to the side of what we said we believe and we want to practice. Now, we also talked about <clears throat> in relation to brotherhood. And you remember that um, in an earlier message we talked about you know, the Protestant view of the church in relation to individual believers. And the Protestant view of the church would have individual believers as separate entities where it's, all, it's only an individual's relationship with God only. Of course, the pietistic movement took that to the extreme. But, uh, <clears throat> but that is not the true New Testament concept. And our Anabaptist forefathers understood that. And they made it very clear that they did not accept that. So they did not accept that concept of the, of the Protestant Church or the Reformed Church. But the Anabaptists believed and that we are in Christ together. And that is what the Scriptures teach us. And we've been looking at some of that. And so we're not individual believers alone, but our lives are intertwined. We are in Christ together. Our lives are connected with each other. We share the same life in Christ. And really when you take part of communion, and we talked about this, the broken bread, you know, and the fruit of the vine where the grapes are crushed together to make one glass of juice, it's symbolic not only of our relationship to Christ and his broken body and shed blood for us, but it also very clearly illustrates the fact that we are, are all in Christ together. The grains of wheat are ground together. We lose our identity in Christ we become one body, one bread. See? And the same with that glass of grape juice. Many individual grapes go into that, are crushed together, and make that one cup. And so, in communion, we, the scripture makes it very clear that that's the koinonia, that's the relationship that we have with each other in Christ. Now, <clears throat> thinking of this, then this, we talked about this, why it's important that um, as a people of God, now I put that row right here. That's probably not very accurate because it should be up here where the conscience of the group is. But um, we could actually, if you want to probably draw it more accurately, we could maybe go like this. And I'll write on top of it. There is going to be some variation in a given group, right? Not every member is going to be exactly the same place. But we talked about this. What happens if, each, if, if the basic membership in a church is always on this written statement and living on this level? You know, just enough to get by. Just enough to stay off the rumble strip. What's going to happen? After a while, there's going to be a lot of pressure to move this line down. Or there's going to be people that go over the line. And then what happens is you start viewing your, your statement of standards like a, a rule book. And then you go to the statement of standards and say, well, am I allowed to do this? You know, are we allowed to do this? And you go there and you say, no, it doesn't say anything about it, so I guess, okay. You see what I'm saying? You end up becoming living by the law. And that's not really the spirit of freedom of life in Christ Jesus. And so there's a certain consciousness of the, of the group. And what we do is because we're interconnected, it means that we have to stay closely related to each other, understand each other, uh, visit with each other, know each other's hearts, so that we can keep that connection. Otherwise, we start pulling apart. And then we're back to the Protestant view of the church where we're all just individuals. Come together, have a little worship service, go home and do our own thing. And that's not what we want. And so... In this, it means that while there's going to be some variation, nothing necessarily wrong, as long as it's in the right context. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So, the, uh, you think about the, um, the importance now on the relationship of self-denial. And uh, we talked about, you know, in relation to the standards of the church, 
But you think about the uh, in relation to the the uh, conscience of the church. Uh, we each, you know, would come with a different variation of thought on where the lines of minimum standard would be. Now, do you think you could ever find a church where you agree 100% with everything that is written in the statement of standards, exactly the way it's written? Do you think you can find a church like that? No, we're, talk we're not talking about the principles now. You know, we, we believe the Bible, right? We believe in all these things. Separation, non-resistance, simplicity. You know, we believe in all those things. But now, as it is applied in church life, do you think you could ever find a church for yourself where you would agree with everything exactly the way it's written in the application of the written statement? How many think you could or you should be able to? Well, it'd probably be a church all by yourself. And there are people that go down that road. Because they say, I can't find anybody to agree with agree with me. And so they end up off by themselves, maybe just themselves or their family or something. Because what does that what does that mean? What is that a sign of? Anyone? Does it mean that they have it figured out and the rest of us don't quite have it figured out yet? Is that what that means? Individualistic? It means everything has to go my way, right? What does the scripture say? Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. So everyone, there's a level of submission that's going to be required. Now, we have some choice in relation to the congregation that we choose to identify with, in relation to what they have established in their congregation as, as a written statement of practice. But, you know, I think any one of us, if we're honest, would say that we would not necessarily draw the, each line at exactly the same place that the group has decided to do it. But that's where submission comes in. Self-denial. We've talked about that. And then you have the conscience of the group where there's the aspect of, you know, what is the expected practice? What is the expected way to do these things? They're not, not, not necessarily written. And you're going to see some variation there. But, um, <clears throat> but we're going to need to give up always some of our own ideas in, in brotherhood to make it work. And so once that line is agreed upon by sincere people seeking to find a spiritual way of living, then Christ makes that binding upon the members of his body in that congregation. Now, have you ever heard someone talk dis disparagingly about man-made rules in churches? You've heard that probably. It's just a bunch of man-made rules. It can be. It can be just a bunch of man-made rules. But in the true Christian church, it is not just man-made rules. And I'll tell you why. Because We looked at this a little bit two weeks ago, but, or at least touched on it. But the scripture makes it very clear in relation, and Jesus said, in relation to the binding and loosing, you know, I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever is loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so there's a level of authority that Christ, the head of the church, gives to his body, the church. There's a level of, of it's a delegated authority. And so that means as a, as a congregation in sincerity and humility and seeking the face of Christ, come together to say this is how we believe these principles should be lived out and this is the, the restrictions or the guidelines that we take upon ourselves as a, a group of brothers and sisters to form this congregation to make this work. You know, and that is done in, in sincerity before Christ and honoring his word. That becomes binding in heaven. So it's not just man-made rules anymore. Now you say, well, doesn't the church have to be really, really careful with that authority? Yes. Very, very careful with that authority. And some of us have seen the abuse of that. Or have heard about the abuse of that. But you know where, what we said before, if the church is not the church, then it doesn't have the authority of Christ anymore. So that's, 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 that has to be taken into consideration too. So whatsoever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. And so where there's a, 
a faithful desire to live out these principles of Scripture and establish a written statement of practice that makes that is binding upon us, not just because of the group voice, but because Christ also recognizes that. So that's an important part to consider. And again, that is a, a distinction between us as Bible-believing people, or you could say from an Anabaptist perspective, versus a Protestant perspective, because that um, that would be quite different in their in their view. Now, I mentioned the fact that a church has to be very, very careful in the exercise of that authority, because if that exercise of that authority is not upon Jesus Christ, the foundation, then it can be abusive, it can be wrong, it can be corrupted. And, uh, but that, that's why it is important to recognize that Jesus made it very, very clear that no one individual or a small group of individuals get to make the rules for a congregation or the rest of the group. Mark 10, 42-45 says, But Jesus called, unto, uh, called them to him. This is after James and John asked for prominent seats at the left and right hand of Christ in his kingdom. You remember how the rest of the uh, ten apostles were very uh, put out with them about that. They wanted seats of, prominent, of prominence. And then Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. You know, in other words, you know, that's how the Gentiles do it. You know, there's there's this status thing and there's this level of authorities, you know, and they exercise lordship. But Jesus said, But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister, which is should have probably been translated servant. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus made that very clear, that the structure of authority in the church is not like in civil government. And um, you may have a legislative body or a parliament or a senate or something that makes rules and then they're signed off on and then those rules are enforced upon a population. There's supposed to be representation, but you know how diluted that is. And Jesus said, that's not how the church operates. And so that is one of the checks and balances in relation to the abuse of authority or power. Now, I'd like to go further down and think a little bit about you know, what about my brother's conscience and my discipleship and self-denial? We talked about, you know, the written statement of practice. We talked about the conscience of a group, which is a, the level of expectation that is generally accepted or looked for, not, not written down, but just how we do things as a conscience of the group, which is unwritten. But now what about the individual conscience of my brother? And again, you know, if, if we're just believers out here like this, scattered around, that is not going to apply very much because we do not have a close enough relationship to really be much of an influence or effect upon our brother's conscience. But in close brotherhood, as the New Testament teaches, and where we are intertwined together, as uh, Ephesians says, you know, we are compacted together by that which every joint supplieth, which means there's a close working relationship. That means I'm going to have an effect upon my brother's conscience. And my brother's conscience is going to have an effect upon me. And that's what I'd like to focus on now for the rest of the message this morning. We are in Christ together with our brothers and sisters. And though I am free, and you are free in our liberty in Christ, my brother's and sister's conscience also becomes my concern. Let's look at some scriptures. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians 9 and verse uh, 19. And Paul here is, is referring to his, not only his liberty in Christ, first of all, but then he's referring to his relationship with others whom he was in contact with. 
1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I, might by, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Now notice what, what is said here that in verse 19, Paul said, really, I'm free from all men. In other words, I am living in my responsibility and accountability to Christ. And in that sense, I am free from all men. But I have made myself servant unto all, that I may gain the more. And so then he says, I identify with others, whether it's Jews or, or the weak or those without law or, or whoever it is, I identify with them. I actually... I put myself in a servant position for other people. Now, this is mostly focusing on those outside the church, in, in mission work or in, in, in things like that. So, uh, so he is saying that while he is free, he takes that freedom and, and he could say curtails it or places a restriction upon himself of what he would be allowed to do in order to gain someone. Now, an illustration of that is when Paul went into the temple there in Jerusalem, when he got to Jerusalem, he went into the temple, you remember, to fulfill that vow. And he went in there to, and, to sacrifice. Now, you almost say that's strange when you think about how Paul was so hard on Peter. You know, when some came from Judea and they were sitting there to eat, you know, and Peter was sitting with the Gentile believers there, and then some of the Jews came from Jerusalem who would have had still this whole thing of the separation of the Jews and Gentiles in their system. They hadn't got, got over that yet. And then when they, in a sense, you know, when they walked in, or, you know, Peter gets up and he leaves the table where he's eating with these Gentile Christians, he goes over and sits down with the Jews, the Jewish believers. And Paul was hard on him for that. He said, I withstood him to the face. Because he was drawing a line between the Christian, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And Paul said, it's not right. But it's interesting. Now in this setting, when Paul went to Jerusalem, he went into the temple to do sacrifice and to fulfill that vow. You remember, that's when they caught him in the temple and they assumed that he had taken that Gentile in there with him, the Greek, and, um, and um, arrested him or mobbed him there, just about killed him. But it's interesting, I think it's an illustration of how, the, how Paul was, in the setting he was in, was willing to adapt, you know what I mean, or to curtail his freedom. He did not need to go into the temple. The same as when, you know, with Timothy, he would not need to, to circumcise Timothy, but he did it, you know, so that was not an offense to, to the Jewish Christians who were still struggling with that whole thing of circumcision. And so, I think it helps us to understand in relation to ourselves, you know, and, and our own conscience versus, you know, uh, someone else's conscience, that we are careful as believers that we would not offend someone else. You know, and not only that, but that we could actually identify with them in order to help them. Now, he said he didn't go without law. He said, I didn't, I didn't become lawless, you know. But, but, what, but he, what he did, he was able to identify with them and to uh, thereby be able to help them, and to win them, and to encourage them. And so we have that, that principle. I'd like to um, just turn ahead now another chapter, chapter 10. And we, maybe, maybe we'll come back to this later. 1 Corinthians um, 10 and verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Now, what he is saying there, he's not saying that he could actually go and sin, and all things are lawful. It's not what he's saying. But in the context of liberty in Christ, he's saying there's a lot I can do now that I would not have been able to do under the, the Mosaic Law. 
Because Paul did not live under the Mosaic law anymore. Even though he was a Pharisee, he was the son of a Pharisee, he was very religious. But he was free from that. Even though, like we just talked about a few minutes ago, he did some things sometimes to, in order to reach the Jewish people. But all things are lawful for me. In other words, Paul could say, well, I could probably go have a uh, slice of ham. And it would not be wrong for me to do that. I'll just use that as an illustration. I'm not, I don't think that's probably what he's talking about. But what I'm saying is under the, the Jewish law, that would have been forbidden. Because pork was, uh, was unclean. So what Paul was saying is, I'm not subject to those laws anymore. All things are lawful for me. But then he says, not all things are expedient. And all things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Now, now notice the context of this, verse 24. Let no man seek his own, but every man his brother's wealth. So he says, well, I'm free to do this. There's gonna, I, I put, I'm going to put a limit upon myself, and that's going to be my brother's conscience. Now, you could say, uh, go on, and it talks about eating meat offered to idols. Verse 25, whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. He's referring to the meat offered to idols that was sold in the market. So they had all this idolatry. They would take meat or food of some kind. This idea of, of meat may not actually be like red meat, but it could be any f food that they would have taken and offered to an idol. So they put it there in these bowls and trays and things and, and you know, in front of their idols, and it would sit there for X amount of hours or whatever it was. And then after that, they'd, you know, trade it off and give the idol some fresh food and take that food to the market, and then they'd sell it. As he says, that sold in the shambles in the market. He said, if you go to the market and you're going to buy some food, you don't have to ask whether this was offered to idols or not. Paul said, I have no problem with that. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Then in verse 27, if any of them that, be, that believe not, in other words, this is an unbeliever, this is now somebody that's not a Christian, not a believer, if any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, in other words, you decide you're going to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. So he's saying, okay, they, set, they give you a meal, we're gonna, we're gonna, your neighbor calls you, and you come over and have a meal with us. So if you decide to go, that's fine. But he said, whatever is set before you, eat. And, and don't ask any questions for conscience sake. In other words, don't make a scene about this whole thing of meat offered to idols in, in that situation. Because obviously that person doesn't have a conscience problem with it because they're an unbeliever. Now in verse 28, But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake for the, uh, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, but now if your neighbor says, oh, I just want you to know that this is, um, this actually was meat off to idols, in case, you know, they might do that in case you're offended. They says, don't eat. Because they did that, they said that, thinking that maybe you would not eat. See, that you would have a conscience reason to not eat. That's why they said that. I remember, I'm not sure how many years ago it was, um, business. We, um, my wife and I were on a business trip, and we um, were in Kelowna. And our head sales rep at the time invited us to his house, him and his wife, for a meal together with some of the other sub reps that we had hired. And um, I forget all the exact the details. My wife might remember them better, but. As I remember, they, they got out the wine, and they were going to have a drink. Now, I would not have done it anyway, for conscience sake, but it was interesting that he knew us well enough. He said, I, you know, um, he offered it to us. But as I remember right, he said, well, I have, I have some soft drink here, too, if you'd rather have that. And you... It kind of reminds me of this, you know what I mean, that he kind of knew that we probably didn't want a, a strong drink, right? So, you know, and, and so it's, it's interesting how 
Paul says, you know, that now if he put it on there and not said anything, I'm not saying that I would have drank a bottle of wine, but but you understand what I'm saying. You know what I mean? It's like he, he kind of knew that this isn't, isn't right. And that's really what Paul is saying here. In verse 29, conscience, I say, not thine own conscience, because Paul said, I could have eaten meat offered to idols. That, that's not really a problem. So it's not my own conscience that would have offended, but I would have left the wrong testimony to that neighbor. Because they said, you know, just so you know, this is meat offered to idols. He said, oh, it's no problem, I can eat that. It, would, it could have given a wrong impression, see. It, it would have actually, not because of my own conscience, but because of that other person. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but the other for why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I, I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now, notice verse 32, giving none offense, neither to the Jews, nor the, to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. See, he's not seeking my own profit, but I'm, I'm actually going to limit myself in areas that I would really not have a conscious problem doing, but I'm going to limit that for the good of my Christian witness and in the world, in society, in the community, and also in the church. Because so, I, please, I please all, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit. So that is a level of self-denial that is involved, of course, in relation to another person's conscience. Now I'd like to take it a step further. We are also called not to offend a little one. Matthew 18, 3-6. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child... The same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. Now verse 6. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in, in the depth of the sea. Offending a little one. You think about the conscience. And I especially thought of this, you know, in relation to whether it's congregational life, or whether in home life, as parents, we have a responsibility that we are careful not to offend the conscience of a little one. It's a very serious thing. This isn't just referring to children or young people. It could refer to that. But a little one is referring to someone who is new in the faith, who is young, who is inexperienced, who has that tender conscience as they seek in all sincerity to serve Christ. You know, and and you know, someone may come and say, well, I'm bothered by this. You know, maybe I said this wrong. You know, let's be very careful with that so you don't offend them. And you can do that by saying, oh, don't worry about it, that's all right. Everybody makes mistakes and everybody tells a lie once in a while and, you know, we don't really mean to. What would you do to that if you said that? You'd, you could offend that, that tender conscience. You, you could help them to deaden that conscience. You see? And so we help them, we nurture them, we walk them through it and we help them grow in their understanding. Don't offend that conscience. And um, I thought of it in a different way. You know, as, as young people, maybe you don't think about it, but as youth, you know, there's younger ones that are following you. They're watching you. They look up to you. They admire you. Don't offend their conscience. It's a serious thing. Because, you know... You say, well, so that's how Christians act. You know, or that's how, you know, young people in the church do things. We all exert an influence. The older ones alike. And I'd like you to just think about it for a little bit. What do you do? Or I should say it this way. What do you restrict yourself in not doing just to have a strengthening influence in the brotherhood? We talked about the conscience of a group, and that's kind of all of us together. But now individually, you know, are we trying to pull, our, is our influence pulling upward, or is our influence pulling downward in, in the church? We all exert an influence upon other people's conscience. 
You say, well, it doesn't bother me. I don't have a problem with that. And maybe that's true. Maybe you are a strong one. But Paul's saying, Jesus is saying, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. There's a time in which I choose not to allow myself to do things because I'm going to keep that influence helping and pulling upward rather than becoming a drag. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. Another part of this, very closely related, is defiling the weak conscience. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. But to us there, and he's talking about meat offered to idols again here. He says, to us there is but one God and Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some have conscience of the idol. Unto this hour, eat, eat, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, or neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit at meat in an idol's temple. Sorry, I lost my place here. For if any man see thee which has hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So he said, you allow yourself to do something. Paul said, you go say, well, you know, we have one Lord Jesus Christ, we have one God. You know, an idol is nothing. Just a piece of wood or stone. So, you know, that doesn't matter, right? We know the idol is nothing. So you're not really, there's no problem eating, a meat, eating meat offered to idols because the idol is nothing. But, how about the poor person the convert that comes into the church, you know, and was steeped in idolatry and, and, is, and has, in his conversion, moved away from all that idolatry and that sinful worship practices. And he, he comes along and sees you sitting in the, in the temple eating meat offered to idols, you know, because you're eating, sitting in the restaurant or whatever, having a meal. And he knows that that, that food came from the, the, the temple. And he, he, that's going to cause him to stumble. See? Through thy knowledge, even though you have the knowledge to say it is nothing, it's not a conscious issue for me, thy weak brother shall perish for whom Christ died. Now notice what Paul said. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. What's the practical outworking of that for us? If I am strong, consider myself strong, you consider yourself strong, say, I can handle this, it doesn't, it's not an issue with me. You know, we're not talking about uh, principles now, we're not talking about the written statement, we're talking about, you know, a level of, co of personal convictions up here somewhere. I can go do this, it's not really a problem for me. But what about my brother? I sin against my brother. I cause him to fall. I wound their weak conscience. You know, someone says, well, you know, there'd be very, a lot of illustrations that I didn't come with a big list of illustrations for you this morning. But, you know, you can say, well, we all have lines in our personal lives we would draw in relation to situations and things that we would allow ourselves to do. Some places we're each weak and some places we're each strong maybe. But by working together, we, we balance each other out in that way. But it says we, you sin against Christ. And now verse 13, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. You see where Paul is exercising discipleship and self-denial in his personal life as it relates to his brother's conscience. And so in Christian brotherhood, we are in Christ together. We are interconnected with each other in the life of Christ. 
And it means that, that my brother's conscience, my brother's conscience, sister's conscience, becomes a point of self-denial for me. You know, we saw it at this level in written statement. We have to give us some of our own ideas to come up with a joint um, consensus on a written statement. There's a sense in which group conscience you do it, and you also do it in an individual level, where I'm careful that I'm not going to cause someone else to stumble by that which I think I could allow. So Paul said he would not eat meat while the world stands. He said, I, I just... If, 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 I'm, if, I, if there's anything in my life that I know would cause someone else to stumble, I'm not going to do it. Now, so just because I feel something is, I don't feel something is wrong for me, doesn't necessarily mean that I should allow myself to do it. And so that means that as a member of the body of Christ, in a congregation, what I do does have an influence on the rest of the body. And you and I have all heard the words, and maybe we've even used them ourselves sometimes, where, you know, it is said, well, others are doing it, so why can't I do it? Maybe young people sometimes use that on us as parents. Well, other young people are doing it, everybody else is doing it, so why can't I do it? Where's the conscious issue in that? Be careful in that. Or if it's okay for them to do it, then I, I, I'll do it too. And again, it, it's a conscious issue. And 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul talks about that. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And so what extra freedoms and liberties that we as parents allow in our homes, we must be careful lest that become a cause for a child to stumble. And we wound a weak, a weak conscience. So now the question in closing is, and this is probably on your minds, so does that, does that mean that the weakest conscience in the church sets the conduct for everyone else? What do you think? So does that mean that the weakest conscience in the church sets the standard for everyone else? Is there a level of personal difference that we are to respect and not to judge in the brotherhood? And I, this is delicate, it's sensitive, but there is a balance here, I believe. Turn with me to Romans 14. This is not talking about now offending a weak conscience, because that's a serious, serious matter. The Bible makes it very clear. Should have a millstone put around your neck, dropped into the ocean. Better for that to happen than to offend some, uh, someone's weak conscience. And so, what about someone that says, "Well, I have a weak conscience on that"? You know, you don't really hear that very often because usually the person that is struggling with the weak conscience actually thinks they're the strong person. Have you ever noticed that? The person with the weak, weak conscience sometimes actually feels that they're the strong ones. And so they feel that nobody else should do this because I, don't, I have an issue with this. I don't think anybody else should do it either. And they get confused because actually they're the ones with the weak conscience. The brother with a stronger conscience would have been able to allow himself to do it. All things are lawful for me, maybe not expedient, but lawful. Now, Romans 14 is not talking about offending a, con a weak conscience, but it's interesting. Maybe I'll take the time to read some of these verses. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. I wasn't thought about that scripture in relation to uh, vegetarians. They seem to think they're the the wise ones and the strong ones, but that's not what the Bible says. Um, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So there again, you're not talking about offending a conscience necessarily, but Paul has recognized that there could be some differences in brotherhood too. 
So someone says, well, I'm going to eat this way, and another person, you know, decides that, you know, this isn't good for you, and I'm going to eat this way. Verse 4, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. Then he goes on to use another illustration. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. So it's referring to uh, under the Mosaic Law and all the feasts that they kept. You know, on the holidays and all those things. And um, you drop down to verse 7. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother, and why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us... This is an important verse here. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, in saying that we're not to judge anymore, he's talking about in the context here of, you know, whether you do, you know, you decide that you, you're going to eat only vegetables. Someone else is going to, one brother says, no, I like my, my meat, my steak. You know, those things really don't matter. That's what Paul is saying. It's not a spiritual issue. But you know, I've seen congregations virtually divide over some of these things. You know, you throw alternative medicine into this, and you throw some of these other things into that, you know what I mean, and some of these health issues, and things that really should not matter are made big issues because people are trying to force their opinion on someone else. Say, you're wrong. You know, you should be doing it this way. And in that context, we're not talking about, you know, a weak conscience now. We're just saying that, you know, there's going to be those levels of difference in the church. And we can accept some of that. As long as it is not a stumbling block, as verse 13 says. So we're not going to judge in those things. But we are going to be careful that we do not put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in our brother's way. There's that part of self-denial that relates then to each of us in the, in the body of Christ. May God help us as we continue to seek the Lord and to understand more of his will for us in our lives, understand what it means to, in self-denial to give up everything for Christ and all the practical areas that go into this I'm not necessarily planning to bring another message on this, except possibly just a summary in conclusion to the series that we've looked at. But I'd like you to go home and think about this in relation to the message this morning. You know, in what areas would you say that you, in your human weakness, could be a stumbling block to somebody else? Just analyze our own hearts. You know, in church life or family life, is there something that I am allowing myself to do? Not necessarily wrong. Maybe even the church, you know, isn't we're not, we're not violating a, even a, maybe church conscience totally in this sense. But, but an influence that is going out from my life that I have allowed that is creating a hazard for someone that is following me or looking on, my brother or my sister. That's part of self-denial. We, we, there's things that we simply choose not to do. And I'm sure you with me know of things. We, we can name personally things that I choose not to do. Not because it's wrong. Not because I think other people should not do it. But I choose not to do something to exert an influence for the good. Rather, because there's always that tendency, and you see it in families, you see it in young people, you see it in the intergenerational changes. You know, well, one generation, you know, draws the line here and allows, and tolerates this. 
And it's often been said, what is tolerated in one generation is the norm in the next. You know, and there's, the, there's a sense in which that can be true. And so there are things that we choose ourselves not to do to try to exert that positive pressure, lest we all slide into apostasy. And we, and we, we start losing our elevation. And we start moving into the areas of principle. And we've seen that where churches finally lose the principle because they didn't maintain the practice. May God help us to be faithful. Let's kneel to pray.